Warning, me time and murder is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Oh. <laughs> Dead on the bathroom floor with a throat. <sighs> oh God. Oh dear. Go to Me Time and Murder YouTube channel where you can watch me tell the case in front of a green screen along with the pictures and videos from the case. Okay, so what am I drinking today, you ask? Just some simple lemon and ice water or ice water with lemon. Refreshing. And for Me Time today, I am going to put, I'm going to put these things in my hair. Have you seen them? I love them. I don't use them as much as I should. Like it's really like good, like no heat, but it's a bit of a faff, but I like it, they're, they're, they're fun. It's like therapeutic. <laughs> oh, if you haven't used it before, so what you do is you put these two together. So it creates one long hook. Then you take one of these, shove it in here. You put it on and then you grab bit of hair, twist it round, that keeps it like in place, then you pull it through. And then by the end, it'll be a ringlet. Ah! Okay, so today's episode is a very special and long-awaited case, long-awaited Patreon request from the very supportive Francesca. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon, Francesca. Okay, so where are we today? Oh, bippity boppity boop. Today we are mostly in Twickenham, I think, uh, which is a suburb of like the greater London area. Notable people from Twickenham, or in Twickenham, whatever, is Thomas Twining, the founder of Twining's Tea, is from Twickenham. It's so on brand. Comedian Rob Brandon, Brandon, Bryden, the Welsh guy, he lives there, he lives in Twickenham. And actor Peter Salas, who is the voice of Wallace from Wallace and Gromit, is also from Twickenham. But unfortunately, Twickenham is not all cheese, tea and laughters, which is the perfect segue into today's case. On March the 21st, 2002, 13-year-old Amanda, or known as Millie, Dowler, was making her way home after school with a friend. The girls hopped off the train station at the Walden-on-Thames stop and went to eat in the station cafe. Millie took her phone out of her school blazer pocket to call her dad at 3.47pm to say she was about to leave and she would be home in half an hour. After the girls were finished eating, they left the station at about 4.05 and went their separate ways. The last time Millie would be seen was at 408 spotted in passing by her sister's friend who was waiting at a bus stop. As I'm sure you have predicted, Millie did not make it home. At 7pm, her frantic parents officially reported Millie missing. Initially, the police focused on the area around the station, interviewing like the train commuters and workers and uh, people about, but nothing came up and soon there was a nationwide search for the missing Millie. Hundreds of police officers and helicopters searching the fields, streets and rivers. 
Detectives who had investigated the disappearance of Sarah Pian were also called in to help. The only hard evidence of Millie was a blurry CCTV footage of her along with other pedestrians at the train station and it really didn't give them a clue, like she wasn't talking to anybody. No, no leads there. Police and the Dollar family made many appeals to the public for information, including a reconstruction on BBC's Crime Watch. The Crime Watch UK appeal included a direct appeal to Millie herself. Her mother expressed hope that Millie had like run away on her own volition, but said that she couldn't think of a reason why she would have run away. And the police agreed with Millie's mom. They said that there was no evidence that she was taken by force because nobody had come forward to say they had witnessed an abduction. Which is stupid. <laughs> Which is stupid because just because there's lack of evidence of a crime does not mean there was not a crime. In June 2002, despite further searches, a £100,000 reward, multiple false alarms, and her parents continuously sending text messages to Millie's phone in like the hope of a reply. It was at this it was at this point that the police told Millie's parents that Millie was unfortunately most likely dead. A few months later, on the 18th of September 2002, naked human remains were found amongst the trees by mushroom pickers in Yately Heath Woods. The naked remains were later confirmed to be Millie's through dental records. It was clear from the level of decomposition and animal activity that Millie's body had been in the woods since her disappearance. But how Millie had been killed could not be ascertained. It had been too long. None of Millie's clothing or possessions, like her purse, school bag, mobile phone, school uniform, was discovered or, or would ever be recovered. The discovery of Millie led the police to reclassify the case as a homicide investigation. On the 22nd of November 2002, police set up a roadblock near to where Millie was discovered. And I'm like, wow, clap, clap, set up a roadblock a month after the discovery and eight months after Eight months, eight months after Millie's disappearance. Oh, he's cornered. He's cornered now. Or she. 6,000 motorists in the area were questioned, but no leads were discovered, obviously. So, get this. Police redirected their focus and investigation into Millie's dad. And yes, I know, I know, most murderers are a family member or a friend or someone you know, but they were dead wrong here. Is that inappropriate? This rabbit hole was a huge waste of time and the police obviously got nothing from it. And eventually the police had to apologise for implicating Mr. Dowler. Like, the media 
went for it. This case was huge. It was all over the news, Crime Watch, newspapers. Like, it was huge. And an accusation like that can ruin somebody's life. Can ruin their credibility. Um, I mean, their life is hard enough without unfounded rumours. So the police had to apologise, obviously, quite rightly. But after this, the police still had no leads. They had no suspects. They had no forensic evidence. Like grainy, blurry CCTV footage. And basically the case kind of went cold. Unless somebody came forward, there was not much more they could do. There was DNA under her fingernails. I think it was under her fingernails, was it? But that DNA was ruled out. And just five months after the discovery of Millie Dowler's body, and only a few miles away, another young woman was murdered. At around midnight on the 3rd of February 2003, in Kensington, London, 19-year-old Marcia MacDonald caught the bus after a night out with friends. That cinema date was the last time they would see her alive. Walking home, Marcia was attacked from behind, less than 100 yards from her parents' front door. She was found suffering from severe head injuries by neighbours who had heard her screams. So neighbours called the police, and when the police came, they found Marcia with a horrific head wound. This time, the victim's mobile phone was still in her pocket, as well as her bag was found nearby, so nothing was missing this time. Marcia was rushed to hospital and died only a few days later. The autopsy showed that Marcia was killed by a single blow to the back of her head with some kind of heavy, blunt instrument, like a hammer. Boyfriends, friends and family members were quickly ruled out and police and police struggled to find any leads on this brutal and apparently random attack. The people in the area became like super concerned and scared. Subsequent police investigations led to the arrest of an unstable, of a mentally unstable 16-year-old boy who wasn't competent enough to be interrogated or to stand trial or be charged. As a result, the child was sectioned. And again, this is another example of when a accusation ruined somebody's life, like there was no evidence that he did it. Just, you know, he was an easy target. Try to pin it on that kid. And police initially thought case closed. But upon further contemplation, investigators noticed a possible link to other similar attacks that had happened in the area months prior to Marsh's attack. There was another 16-year-old schoolgirl who was thought to have slipped in the snow and banged her head. After Marsh's attack and death, police realised that that could have been an attack too. So police went to the hospital that the girl was treated at and the girl who supposedly fell in the snow and police were able to look at a description, a description of her wounds and some photographs. 
and concluded that it was most likely an attack. But she had survived. And she wasn't the only one. Another young woman had been attacked in the street, similar circumstance, and survived. However, the problem was, was that nobody was able to give, like, a description of their attacker. The attacker was coming from behind. The victim said that they were walking along and the next thing they knew, they woke up in hospital hours or sometimes days later. How scary is that? That is petrifying. The attack seemed to be totally unprovoked and random violence. But it was possibly all done by the same person who had murdered Marsha MacDonald. I have just realised the green is probably going to disappear into the green screen. Did this happen? (laughs) Let's just keep going. Then, on the 20th of May 2004, 15 months after the murder of Marsha MacDonald, 18-year-old Kate Sheedy was heading home after a night out in Twickenham to celebrate her end of air levels, which is end of high school tests. After jumping off the bus, she began to walk a few hundred yards to her front door. As she was walking, she became aware of a large car ahead of her. It was parked with its engine running. Kate said that the car was sinister looking, a white people carrier with blacked out windows. Kate was very weary of the car, so she crossed the road, which is smart, so she wouldn't have to walk past it. But as she did, Kate heard the car go into gear and accelerate. The car shot across the road and ran her over. Kate was now under the car, between the front wheels and the back wheels. The car then reversed, so the front wheels went over her again, and then it drove off. According to Kate, she didn't scream or make a sound. All that was going on in her body was that she felt crushed. She then stood up and fell straight back down. Kate knew she had to get back home, so she crawled out of the road and called her mum, saying, Mummy, I've been run over, I'm in our road. If they don't get here soon, I am going to die. Kate's injuries were enormous. Her back was torn open, her liver was ruptured, one of her lungs had collapsed, and the other one was punctured. She also suffered from broken collarbones and ribs. Incredibly, Kate survived the frenzied and brutal attack and would go on to live a happy, well, I don't know if she's happy, and would go on to live a normal life. Although the attack on Kate Shady seemed different to the murder of Marcia MacDonald and the other reported attacks, police believe they were all linked. For a start, the areas of the attacks were not very far apart. And also the outcome of the crime is the same to inflict brutal violence to an unsuspecting victim. Instead of using a hammer on Kit, instead the perpetrator just used a car. Still violent. Still getting what he wants. Or she. (laughs) Women can be anything. 
Or, side note, my idea, maybe he was going to use a hammer on Kate, but she'd crossed the road and he sort of like panicked and decided compulsively, impulsively, to use his car and then drive off. Maybe he had a hammer in the car. Other commonalities were that all the women were, well, women for a start, they're all women, all women and young girls, aging between 16 and 32. All of them were white with fair or blonde hair and all dressed pretty well. Toya just texts me to say, good job, girl. Thanks, Toya. Now, police were onto something because someone who fitted that description perfectly was unfortunately the next victim. Attacked only three months after Kate Sheedy, 22-year-old French exchange student Amélie de Lagrange. I hope I'm saying that right. I did check. On the 19th of August 2004, Amélie caught the bus home to her rented flat in Twickenham. But unfortunately, she missed her stop. It was a nice dry night in August, so Amélie decided nothing of it to just walk home taking a shortcut through the Twickenham Green Park. At about a quarter past ten, a young man walking through the Twickenham Green Park came across what he first thought was a bundle of rags and clothes. Of course, it's not. It's Amelie. She was lying on the grass with her shopping next to her. But this time, her backpack was missing. Different to other attacks. But similar to other attacks, Amelie had a single blow to the back of the head and she was bleeding profusely as she lay in a pool of blood. The young man quickly called for an ambulance and Amelie was rushed to hospital. Unfortunately, Amelie died about an hour later from a loss of blood. Miles away from her home, family and friends. Oh, it's just so tragic, you know, dying getting murdered in a different country like you're just so helpless to police it appeared that Amelie had been killed by a blow to the head with a hammer like the other murders police were certain this was not a coincidence and there was a serial killer on the loose a second senseless murder in the same quiet area meant the story was now front page news police had to make a statement to the media they informed the public that there were they informed the they informed the public that there was no formal link to the murders like DNA, fingerprints, or CCTV, but with the similarities in offences, MO, location, and victim profile, it wouldn't make sense to be researching in different departments. You know? Keep it all together. Police knew that the killer was searching for random victims. So that means if he's planning, he is aware of things like bystanders, CCTV, he's aware of leaving his fingerprints behind, as well as being careful of mobile phone data. And because he was planning, or she, there was no evidence at these crime scenes, except when it came to Amelie's. Her backpack, with her mobile phone, was missing. Police were able to check her mobile phone's last location, 
it had been switched off less than 10 minutes after Amelie had been found. It was switched off in Walton-on-Thames, a considerable distance away, which meant that the attacker had to have fled the scene in a vehicle. Detectives trolled through 2,000 hours of CCTV footage and eventually identified a white van parked close to where Amelie had been murdered. But there were over 25,000 white vans registered in the UK. Police were not optimistic, but they did have a file on hand, a list of suggested perpetrators, given to them mostly by women who had called in suggesting it was their husband or ex-husband or boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. There were 129 people on this list. Perhaps one of these people have a white van. Eventually, police came across the name Joe Collins. Where's Joe? She was convinced that her ex-partner, Levi Belfield, was a possible suspect. The blonde Joe had been in a relationship with Levi for three or four years, but he had proceeded to terrorise her for the next 11. Joe told, Joe told the detectives that Levi had a white van for his wheel clamping business and that he had a violent nature with a particular hatred of blonde women. Can I just interject? I absolutely love the name Levi. I always like wanted to call like my son Levi. I think it's such a cool like old biblical name. No? Is it is it going to be ruined? Oh, and I always loved the name Noah, right? Noah, like Noah's Ark, N-O-A-H, for a girl. Is that weird? Am I a freak? Anyway, who is Levi Belfield, the man with such a great name? You'll have to find out next episode. Before I go, I want to say a big thank you to the Me Time and Murder supporters um followers and patrons your kind words has helped me to keep going and to experiment with these new medias to me new to me and i also want to thank the journalists this is weird but i do want to thank the journalists reporters and writers from who i take my research i feel like they're not thanked enough i always reference my sources in the description and on the Instagram. Part two will be released either Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on my week. So just subscribe. Then you'll know when part two is out. You see what I did there? Slan.